HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, February 10th. This is the 95th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a top hospitality attorney. I will introduce him in a moment. First, as we do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to speak your truth, even if what you have to say is not the popular opinion. It's important to be candid and true to what you believe in, and there's a nice way to say things. So as an old friend of mine taught me, he said, say what you mean, but don't say it mean. So that's my tip today. Now, I'm very happy to have my guest here. It is Bruce Bronster. He is a law partner with Windows, Marks, Lane, and Mittendorf. Bruce's practice focuses on hospitality and restaurants, commercial disputes, tax, lien, and mortgage foreclosures, and general business advice. Among his clients is Pat LaFrieda Wholesale Meats. And Bruce is a member of the Restaurant and Hospitality Law Committee of the Association of the Bar of the City of New York. It's a long one. So. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you, Sherry. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here and talk some hospitality law. And I know you do more than just hospitality law, but since this show is about, about that, uh, we'll, we'll try to focus on that a little more. But to start out, I want to see, growing up, did you always want to be an attorney? How did you get into practicing law? Well, I, I, I didn't do it the traditional way. When I was a kid, I actually worked in restaurants from the time I was about 16 or 17. And I worked in a variety of restaurants until I was 21. So I, I worked in restaurants. I went to school at night. And then 
I started working in a law firm. Where was that? That was in New York. Okay. I was working at Broom Street Bar, and uh, the bartender was doing part-time bookkeeping, and she came in, and she was frantic because she didn't know what she was doing. She said, I need help. I need a bookkeeper. I need someone to help me. So I went up there, and I started working at a law firm doing bookkeeping. I was going to school for accounting. I stayed. I, I did sort of two careers for a while. Um, I ultimately transitioned to working in a law firm. I got my degree in accounting, and I wasn't practicing. I was sort of managing the finances of a law firm. Uh, I did that for a while. I went to law school at night. I still wasn't committed to being a lawyer quite yet. <laughs> I went to business school on uh, Columbia's executive MBA program, did that, um, and then ultimately I started practicing. Okay, and all of this was in New York. This was all in New York. Wow, and didn't, I didn't yeah didn't travel too far. Yeah, well, but but it's a great place to be, and also I didn't know you had a background working in restaurants, so that's cool. Yeah, that was my my first love. So um, I worked as a an omelet chef, a pasta <laughs> chef, a waiter, a busboy. I fried chicken at a place called the Great Manhattan Ribbon Chicken Company. Not familiar. No, till now. Closed. Um, and when I tell some of my clients who are actual chefs, I I mentioned to a Michelin starred chef, I said, I was a pasta chef at this great place called Ootsie's, which was really a known place for its pasta. And he said, no, you weren't. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're a line cook. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, fine, touche. You got me. Yeah. But that's a lot more than probably a lot of attorneys. Uh, I don't, you know, cooking background. Yeah. I mean... One of the ways I sort of got into hospitality law, my, my other focus is real estate, which is very, very closely aligned. Um, I started representing certain clients in the hospitality world, started out actually as nightclub people, and I just enjoy the subject matter. And if you enjoy the subject matter and it's your passion, then it brings something a little bit more to the actual practice, the nuts and bolts practice. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. I think that was a tip of mine at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when did you? Am I saying the name of your firm right? Say Windells. It, Windells. Yeah. And short is Windells Marks. Yeah. I don't know. It seemed I wasn't sure if that was. It seemed the whole name, but you kind of shortened Windells it up for us. Windells. Okay. So, how did you get to Windells? Were you practicing elsewhere? So I, I was at a firm for. About 17 years, Fishbein Badillo, I left that firm and went to a firm um, called Dreyer. And if you'll excuse the digression, in 2008, um, I was practicing law, but I was approached by Bear Stearns, which was a big client of mine. They wanted me to run their legal department. So 17 interviews later, uh, I get the job. That's impressive. I (laughs) sign on the dotted line, and I was hired as um, senior managing director. I took my wife and son away for a weekend uh, to the Caribbean, and I was to return March 19th of 2008 and start on March 20th, and March 19th was the day that um, Bear Stearns went out of business. So it went wow. literally went out of business. I was the last senior managing director hired uh, at Bear Stearns. So crazy. It was really crazy, and further digression, uh, career path, I went back to my firm, which was Dreyer, and I had been there for four years, and the lead partner of that firm 
was arrested for impersonation, and it turns out he was a serial um, thief, and he stole hundreds of millions of dollars from hedge funds. So later that year, I found myself looking for a job in December 2nd. Uh, and then about 10 days later, I went on a whole variety of uh, job interviews, got hired by Wendell's, and I've been there ever since. Wow. I have no comment, just I'm like, that's a story. It was quite a year. um, So did you bring clients with you then? Like these, when you started working, you said with uh, nightlife uh, operators, I mean, were those, was this before this time or when did you get into the hospitality law? This was definitely before this time. Uh, At the time I was doing primarily real estate litigation, development, transactional work, and just a small part of my practice, maybe 10% of my practice was hospitality. Um, Knockwood, every single client I had came with me. Uh, and that practice has grown. I mean, if it was 2x, now it's 5x. You know, it's grown exponentially since then. Right. And what, what, who, what type of um, businesses do you work with in the hospitality industry? Well, a whole variety. I, I work with Restaurant owners and operators. I work with purveyors like La Frida. Um, I work with chefs, many sort of household name type of chefs. I work with management companies. I work with other purveyors. I work with PR companies. You know, mm. uh, <laughs> the hospitality is sort of like a, a field that generates, you know, cottage industries around it. Um, from your POS system to your distributor to liquor companies I've worked with. I've worked with ad agencies, PR companies, uh, hosts of uh, food-related events. I've represented hotels. Um, real estate dovetails very well with the hospitality industry because if you have uh, a developer uh, doing a huge mixed-use uh, facility, which, which I do, mm-hmm. um, they're going to have a hotel component, they're going to have an F&B component, they might have a condo component and commercial office space. So... Yeah, they they definitely do go together. And I'm thinking, so I had on Carolyn Richmond on my show uh, a few weeks ago, and she said she only works with one side, the restaurant tour side. It sounds like you take lots of different sides. I guess every case is different. You know, uh, I know Carolyn. I've worked with her on cases. She's a great employment lawyer and highly recommend her. Um, My practice is a little different. It's a little bit more diverse. So I'm not, I don't necessarily do just employment work, although I've done myriad uh, employment contracts for chefs, but I'm not a labor attorney. So if I I am proficient at doing a chef's contract, I can certainly represent the restaurateur. Um, I can certainly represent the talent. I can represent the hotel. And you look at different sides of the same type of product. Is there a common type of case that, you see in the hospitality industry that keeps coming up or something that's changed over the years? It's kind of a broad question. I mean, restaurants are great for generating business. There there are businesses that generate a lot of business. So what will often happen in my office is someone knows me or all my, you know, all of my work is referral work. Um, they'll call me and say, I want to start a restaurant. I say, great, come on in, let's chat. And then we talk and, and I'll say, what, what's your, 
you know, are you the money? Are you the talent? <laughs> like, how do you want to do this? Is this a joint venture? And we'll start talking. What's the IP? Who's going to own it? You know, so someone will have an idea, but they won't really have fleshed it out. So the first thing we do is we figure out the structure and what people don't think about. Oh, they have a great concept. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a burger concept or it's Chinese food or, you know, it's a whoopie pie, like whatever it might be. <laughs> they haven't thought about, you know, sort of the 360 view as to how's it going to be funded? Who's going to manage it? How is the IP going to be held? Uh, what are the real estate components, brick and mortar, et cetera? So we, the first thing we'll do is formulate that plan. The second thing we do is we're probably going to set up some sort of operating agreement. Usually they're LLCs because it gives you a lot of fluidity and uh, ease in setting up different structures. You're going to set up that type of agreement. Um, and within that agreement is going to be how the money works, which is the biggest thing, something called the waterfall, like, who invests what, what are their responsibilities, and how do we divvy up the money in case there's profits or in case disaster, you know, there's a bankruptcy. We've got to sell all the assets. How, how does the money flow? Um, the second thing is uh, how the management works. So in very complicated agreements, the management is, is divided up in a lot of different ways. In a simple agreement, usually there's a managing member. There's, there's someone who manages the organization. And they're going to be responsible for almost all the day-to-day -day stuff. And maybe the money can vote on, you know, uh, dissolution or bankruptcy or sale of substantial, uh, like, major business decisions. But in a simple agreement, the manager is going to do all of that. But in a more complicated agreement, there are going to be different levels of management. Different people are responsible for different things. So... Um, one thing that it's good that I have a restaurant background in, in setting this type of thing up is that um, there's a, obviously a difference between the front of the house and the back of the house, mm -hmm. knowing the difference, how it works. Because in a complicated agreement, like a management agreement, you might have a group or individual who's responsible for the front of the house, and you might have a completely different group or individual who's responsible for the back of the house. And then there's some, some issues where there's a little cross. You have to like figure it out and put it into an agreement. So formation of the business venture is where we start. So we form, we form an LLC, we incorporate, we set up an agreement, um, we open a bank account, we get a tax ID number, we fund it, we capitalize it, and then, all right, now what's next? So the next component for a restaurant is usually some sort of bricks and mortar. They're going to go out and find a location. So they go out, I work with them, um, and because I'm have a background in the industry, I like to really get involved. I mean, I'll be like, no, I don't like that location. There have been 10 restaurants in that location, and it's going to fail because of the following reasons. Or, I love it. It's, I love it. It's a de, de novo thing. I think it can, whatever. Um, so we try to find a space. We negotiate the space. So there are a lot of terms to be negotiated with a landlord, and that's something I particularly know very well because of mm -hmm. my real estate background and dealing with guarantees that, you know, if you have a chef entrepreneur, they don't know about a personal, a good guy guarantee. They don't know why it's important or what it means. So we'll negotiate a lease and then we'll, we'll represent the tenant in that lease. So now we have a space, we have an organization, and now we have to hire people. And it might not be a chef-driven thing. It might be something else. So we have to go out and hire like a super experienced chef, or we want a, it's a hotel and we want um, a celebrity chef. 
So now we have to negotiate and draw up that contract. Um, and that's always interesting. I, had, I did a restaurant that was owned by celebrities. So all of the contracts around that restaurant had NDAs. You Can know. you say who now? Um, uh, that one I'd prefer not to. Okay. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for laying out that, the, the process. It's, that was um, learning. And I, it makes sense, everything, the way you go through. Is there, a, I was thinking, is there a restaurant you've recently, or a chef you've recently worked with that you have gone through that with, found the location, and that you could tell us about? I mean, I, I've represented a lot of chefs. And recently I've worked with, uh, like, for example, tonight I'm going to John DeLucci's uh, new concept, which is... I know John. Yes. I mean, he's, yeah, I'm a fan of his. And I knew he was opening a new place. So this is, the situation with that is it's a hotel. It's going to, the name of the restaurant is Bedford & Co. Um, It's in the East 40s. Good location. I think there's a real, like, dearth of decent restaurants over there um his food is great i think he's going to do really well um so we work together and then we also work together on some of his restaurants where he's had successes like the lion the crown and bills and i work with him and his partners which sort of over the years yeah and you get the perk of going to the restaurant which is i I do all the time (laughs) so i'm i'm super excited for john i think he's a really talented guy yeah me too Mm -hmm. i well, I met you at the New York City Wine and Food Festival, and I saw him there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just my memory. I have this great picture of him holding up his meatball, and I got an action shot. Um, but he's, yeah, I'm a fan of his, and I'm glad he has uh, something new uh, going on. I'll have to check it out. Um, I've worked with Alex Guarnaschelli, who I have an immense amount of respect for. Uh, she's a great personal friend. We, we do a lot of cooking together. Um, she just opened up the Driftwood Room in, in South Selby. Beach, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. At the Nautilus Hotel. Super great hotel. Amazing design. Fantastic chef. Innovative menu. I mean, you know she has butter as well. Right. Well, I'm, I've, I'll be down at South Beach Food and Wine Festival. Oh, me too. Okay. I, I was going to ask you. I figured. So I, I want to check out her place. Because that seems to be... Um, I don't know if I guess it is sort of a new newer trend with with top chefs going into hotels and mm-hmm. maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. We're gonna take a little break first, but I'd like to get your insight on it. Great. So, stay with us. We're taking a little break here. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. And the featured artist today's tax star will be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Bruce Bronster. He is a law partner with Windells, Marks, Lane, and Mittendorf. We're talking about hospitality law, real estate law, 
So before the break, I was talking about chefs in hotels, and uh, I saw you've written a bunch of articles, amazing stories, but there was one you wrote about the relationship with uh, the the change of what's happening with chefs going into hotels and why that concept might work better now than it used to work, or different. It was an article, do you recall what I'm talking about? It was in Leisure and Hospitality oh, okay. International. International? Mm-hmm. So... Well, you know, there's been a proliferation of great hotels in New York, for example, and a point of distinction among the hotels to, like, elevate your brand is to have some sort of amazing F&B. So if you look at places like the Nomad, you know, obviously that's a hotel with a star quality Mm -hmm. uh, chef and, and restaurant in it. And... Hotels, their goal is to have room occupancy, and one of the best ways to do that is to have a known, you know, F&B product in there. And, you know, 30 years ago and prior, when you'd have a great restaurant, there'd be one of them. You know, they're just, they didn't just multiply like they do now. Now, with travel being easier and the internet and people knowing a brand, and wanting to experience a brand, it's much more important to take a really good brand and moving it to different locations, really capitalizing on the intellectual property. So hotels are doing that, and they're saying, look, we have an F&B component that may or may not make money. You know, like, for example, room service, as expensive as it is, you go in, you have, like, your $26 eggs or whatever it costs. The, the restaurant and or the hotel loses money on that product which people don't really understand. Why? Because there's a lot of labor involved. You have to take the order, you have to put the order, and then it takes you like 20, 30 minutes to get it all the way up to the room. So there's labor and there's food cost and there's everything, and they don't make money on that. But you really can't get rid of it because it's a service that people want. Yeah. So sh- hotels want great restaurants. Usually a proven commodity is a named chef. Uh, Harold Moore is opening up Harold's Meat Plus 3 in the Tommy Hotel. I worked with Harold on that. He's a, an amazing chef from Commerce Restaurant. Yes. One of my favorite, you know. I'm a, I'm a fan of his, and I think uh, the industry and myself, we were all saddened when Commerce closed because yes. it was a very beloved restaurant. Right. So. I think we're all jonesing for the birthday yeah. cake. Yeah. <laughs> so he'll, he'll be back. Um, so that's a... That's a uh, a brand that a hotel can blow up. And in many deals, the hotel will want to keep the intellectual property as well. So if they do another hotel, they get to use the property again. Yeah, well, I've seen also with South Beach in particular, because I am from Miami, that seems to be the 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 structure. It seems a new hotel or a renovated hotel and a lot of them are New York City star chefs that are going down mm-hmm. there and opening new places. I think the Miami dining scene is is getting much stronger because of that. So, I, I really like the Miami dining scene. I think there there's some um, startup stuff that's going on down there that's really good. I think they've imported a lot of good New York product. I mean, I love Josh Capon and, and Lure, mm-hmm. um, among others. They've they've imported other really good New York brands like Nobu. Um, Scott Conant uh, is down right. there. Scarpetta. And there are some Miami-based chefs, too, that I think are doing brilliant things, like the Pub Belly Group. And, and Pub Belly, sure. I went to 
um, Alder Alter recently. Um, there haven't been. It's worth checking out. It's in over design district area. Um, so, yeah, no, it's it's interesting to see to see the changes happening there. What other what other changes are you seeing in the industry or or things you were mentioning for the show about second floor locations? Well, real estate, the real estate component of the hospitality world has become a more prominent component. So, what has happened to a variety of restaurants in New York is they've been basically priced out. I think Gramercy Tavern has had to move because the landlord wants more money. You know, you have these great iconic restaurants that have been around for 20 years and their lease is up. Union Square Cafe, right? Union Square Cafe, that's what I meant. No, I knew knew that's what you meant. Um, And they're actually moving to a really cool location on uh, Park Avenue South. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Um, So what you have to do is you have to maximize space and you have to try to get great space that is not so expensive. So it's much easier for a landlord to put a shoe store in than a small restaurant because the shoe store um, tenants, there's going to be no smells, there's going to be no noise, there's going to be no crowds, um, no hassle. You know, there's just going to be people buying shoes from nine to five. Um, So, and they're going to pay more money. So the landlord wants to have commercial space, highest and best use. The restaurants, in turn, have become very creative in using second floor space and basement space. So there was a whole group of basement restaurants that have come out, second floor restaurants, and those were always really, really difficult. And now they're becoming successful. I mean, one of the best examples of that is the Ralph Lauren um, polo. Hmm. It's a restaurant you cannot get into. True, I guess. I was able to get in because a concierge who on that I know, she came on my show, Jeannie Voltzinas, made a reservation for me because she had a relationship. But, yeah, it's one of those impossible-to-get-in places, and it's the hot ticket. Right, so they have 100% occupancy. I assume they're making yeah. a lot of money. And it's, uh, it's underground. To the, yeah. it's, it's basically a basement restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, It's beautifully appointed. It's Ralph Lauren. I mean, it's gorgeous, but... It's underground. Um, you know, uh, Quality Italian, which is near my office, is a second-floor restaurant. And as far as I know, it's doing extremely well, and they yeah. did a beautiful job. So they have uh, Michael White has um, Ristorante Marini uptown, basically a second-floor restaurant, and doing very well. doesn't hurt that the food is amazing, but, you know, creative second-floor use of space it's cheaper and all you have to do is get the people in the door once you feed them you've got them so yeah those are good examples what advice would you give to someone opening a restaurant like is there a common mistake or something you see or just to avoid <laughs> the you know, years of experience usually I say don't open a restaurant that's that's <laughs> the general advice okay once we get past that and they seem committed um the, the thing about opening a restaurant is you really want to experience people. And, and what I find is people go out every night and eat in restaurants, and therefore they think they're experienced. And that's, that's such a common thing. Oh, but they are. <laughs> they're experienced patrons. They're not experienced operators. You know, everything about a restaurant has to be done perfectly. So it's not only the food, which is a really important component. It's... The dining experience, I think, is equally as important. 
Um, so the front of the house has to be just as strong. Samalia has to be just as strong as the back of the house. So those are two big things. And then the management and the operations have to be pinpoint perfect. So I helped set up, actually, I did a little bit more than legal work. I helped set up the Blue Parrot restaurant in um, East Hampton. And we had a lot of partners and everybody had to say. And, and it was a lot of fun, great food, great experience, place doing very well. But, you know, people would want to spend money and, let's say, redo the bar, which might cost $5,000. I'm like, that's, that's 500 burritos, you know? <laughs> Or it's actually the profit on 5,000 burritos. You know, I used to do, like, sort of uh, advise people in burrito dollars. You have to make a lot of money to cover your costs. And everything is like that in a restaurant. You know, you have a small problem with overtime. You know, that's going to eat into the bottom line. So everything has to be perfect, pinpoint accuracy. Um, operations have to be great. Keeping your costs a good soul down is, is critical. You have to have the right suppliers you have to have a great product at the right price we're going to deliver quickly um, the rent has to be right the escalations have to be perfect uh, in the rent and the lease lease component I mean there's there's so many like little tiny things that really hit your bottom line which goes back to your first point of don't open a restaurant <laughs> no it's challenging it is very challenging there's so many things that people don't don't realize go into it and I will now compare uh, profit loss with burritos forever. <laughs> yeah. And before we take a break, let me let me ask you my question from last week. So I had on Polly G of Polly G's. Have you been out to Polly G's? I have not. You have to get out there. His pizza is great. So he did. He wanted to know what's your favorite burger. Um, that's a great question. I get that a lot. I mean, look, not just because they're my client, uh -huh. but. The free to meat, truly, which I get for all my personal use as well as, you know, every restaurant I go to, they do have the best meat. So all of my favorite burgers tend to be La Frida burgers. Um, my favorite burger is the White Label, which uh, I go to Vaucluse for. Um, it's a La Frida burger. It's great. Um, I happen to like the French onion soup burger at Le Rivage. Paul Denimil, the chef there, he I think he won Burger Bash with it. Yeah. Um, for like kind of a standard, you know, single up the middle burger, which just cannot be beaten. I love the burger at Lure. Um, I love the burger at at the Nomad Bar. And I, for, I forgot who the chef is there, but I know he uses lamb fat in that burger. It's really delicious. Um, Alex Cornicelli at Butter has done a has done a patty melt that is just off the charts, like great stuff. I'm gonna have to have a burger tonight. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, no. Um, uh, I've I've had I've had many of those, but I have not had the white label one at Vaucluse, and I heard it was amazing. It's, it's excellent. Oh, and the black label, of course, the Mineta black label. Tavern. Yeah, I mean, Mineta. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great as well. Okay. Well, on that note, I hope everyone's now craving burgers. <laughs> uh, we're going to take one more break and come back, and we're going to do my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Again, this is Star. We'll be right back on All in the Industry.
Okay, we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Bruce Bronster. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I name a couple of things, like an either-or situation, like chocolate or vanilla, and you just pick your preference. You got it. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Communal. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. Leno or Letterman? Uh, Leno. Client. (laughs) (laughs) Burger Bash or Metopia? Ooh, Metopia. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Uh, Cheese plate. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Manhattan. Well, my father, who's an attorney who keeps score now of this game, he has, I don't know, his own scoring system. I think you're going to do very well. (laughs) He's given some tens recently. I'm going to have to compile the tens, but I I think you did well. Thank you. Very, very decisive. Absolutely. (laughs) I know what I like. You certainly do. Um, So let's talk some industry news. First article I have was on First We Feast, The Problems with Food Media That Nobody Wants to Talk About by Chris Schoenberger and Justin Bolas. So this was an article that came out last week, and a lot of people, everyone's talking about it because uh, basically these guys are were calling out things in food media that they see happening that no one's talking about. Um, some of the examples they gave were... Food media has felt, or for lack of better word, soft. He said, food writers are too scared of losing access to be critical. There was one about PR saying PR has too much influence on what get, gets covered. Did you see this piece? Did, uh, do you have any thoughts on it? I heard about it. I didn't read it. Um, but I, I do have some opinions on that. I, I certainly don't think that critics are too soft. Because I think about the two recent reviews of Per Se and Vaucluse. Um, and I think that those are two, in my opinion, some of the best restaurants in New York. And the problem with the reviews, which weren't particularly positive, were that the criteria for the review is unspecified. So you have a Vaucluse is a, re- is a restaurant that makes its own bread, it makes its own butter. I mean, it's, it's a very sophisticated food quality restaurant. And how that could get a similar rating to, like, Shake Shack or, you know, like a small Mexican place. Like, there's no criteria on the stars. What are they, what are they rating by stars? Are they rating, you know, the ambiance? Is it just the food? Is it the presentation? Um, is the is innovative effect of it? And... You know, does how does it fit into the neighborhood or the clientele? Like it's so loosey goosey as to have it not make sense. And I think Pete Wells was wrong in both of those reviews because I've been to both of those restaurants recently. I think he was way off the mark. So, yeah, I found both of those reviews to be exceptionally harsh, and and also, I mean, now if you take uh, per se is. He knocked it down to two stars, mm-hmm. and he's given Superiority Burger two stars. Right, so exactly. it's 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 that the star discussion and the whole that's a whole yeah that's a lot of people are talking about that, and I, I agree that I think the critics and Pete Wells they have been 
saying it how they see it and they're not being soft. I think this article was more calling out the food media in general, like writers, not critics. And one of the other things it said was about how the food world, that they're afraid to, it says, the food world is too hungry to tear down its idols, but only when it's safe. So in that, he's saying when all of a sudden people were talking about, per se, not being up to the standards, and then all of a sudden there was a lot of food voices out there saying, oh, yeah, yeah, and like jumping on that bandwagon saying they had a similar experience. So um, it was, you know, just kind of calling out what, what, what about the writing and I think people being afraid generally to maybe say something bad about a chef because then they're not going to be invited to go to that restaurant. They're not going to be welcome there. Um, yeah, there was a, this is like a hot, I mean, this is, we could probably talk about the, these points for a long time because he, they brought up a lot of things, but I think it's cool that they did bring them up because it's getting people talking. I, I think that's great. I, th- I do think that there are some chefs in New York that are absolutely Teflon that Nobody ever says anything bad about them. And there are other chefs who seem to be targets for whatever reason. And, you know, uh, nobody ever says anything bad about John George. Now, the quality of his restaurants is amazing. But, you know, like John George and Michael White, quality of his restaurants is amazing as well. These are all great restaurants. Uh, does yeah. John George get a free pass? Seems to, a little bit. Because you can nitpick over any restaurant, going back to Per Se, Per Se, on the worst night, is a three and seven-eighth star restaurant. I mean, it, it, if it blows everything, it's an amazing restaurant. You know, yeah. Like I had an amazing experience there at all these places. I could not be a critic. And and even, I don't, I mean, my experience of Per Se, Levin Madison, and I went to Vaucluse and I had an amazing meal there. Did not have the burger. <laughs> but I, 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 I agree with you that um, it was an impressive. It's an impressive operation of what they're doing. So, um, well, I'm sure there's going to be more commentary now coming out on these subject matters. Uh, on, a, on another note, the other article I had was something I saw on CNBC. A Beyonce mention sends lop- Red Lobster sales higher by Sarah Witten. So this is how Beyonce performed during the Super Bowl halftime show and her new song Formation has a line about it's a very dirty line about going to Red Lobster but apparently her her new song has caused uh, in, an increase of traffic and sales at Red Lobster spiking 33% this weekend. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so there was, I saw there was some stuff Red Lobster kind of saying, yeah, we're there, that they don't, they're not giving her all the credit. They're saying, yeah, we've had some promotions and new things going on, but it seems like it correlates pretty, pretty significantly. And they said they're now going to rename their Cheddar Bay biscuits, the Cheddar Bay, like B-E-A-B-E-Y after her biscuits. And, uh, I just I, I saw that and I just laughed. I was like, wow, what an impact a song and a celebrity can have on a restaurant, a chain restaurant. Well, I, I've done a decent amount of work for liquor companies as well. And I thought you were going to say for Beyonce. I have not, <laughs> no. But for liquor companies. Yeah, and yeah. look, they're, especially in, in rap songs, when you have like a Corvassier mention or Don Perignon or DP or whatever... These types of mentions 
most of them are organic, meaning the companies are not paying for them, but companies would pay for that because it's such amazing advertising. So just like there's product placement in TV, there's definitely product placement uh, in the song world. And because it's, you know, people get um, entranced by pop culture and it's a very sort of 360 lifestyle thing. You know, it's like swag bags at, at you know, at Sundance or so exotic right. because people want to be part of that culture, you know, True. in some way. But do you think Beyonce purposely put Red Lobster in her song for to help them? <laughs> My guess is not a chance. But. That's what I think. I, I think, you know, it's... Um, it just is what it is, but you're right. Yeah, you know, a lot of influence. So uh, I haven't been to Red Lobster in a really long time. I don't even remember last time. But I think I was a kid. Yeah, me too. So, well, I guess they probably have a line out the door now. Good for that. Good. <laughs> okay, so that was industry news. We're going to take another break here and come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. It's all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. And this one's by Nair called Glass City. We'll be right back. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience, which this week is at Momofuku Nishi. Here's the rundown. Location, 232 8th Avenue at 21st Street in Chelsea, New York City. The concept, Momofuku's latest eatery approaching Italian cuisine through Korean and other Asian cooking styles. The chef and owner, David Chang. Why did I go? Because this is probably the most buzzed about restaurant right now in New York City. My experience. I was able to get a 6.30 reservation for one on Friday. Nishi only recently started taking reservations and people have been waiting for hours to get in. And when I was there checking in, I overheard them quoting a two-hour wait time for walk-ins. So I was lucky to have my reservation. I was seated at the back bar counter right next to a solo diner who I've met before at Momofuku. Her Instagram handle is Ellen Oist, and she's a big Momofuku fan. So we dined solo together. What did I get? I started with the black bass with tiger's milk shio kombu, and then I had two pastas because I wanted to try them both, and I figured I would take what I didn't finish to go. I had the the Chechi e Pepe with chickpea hozon and black pepper, and the Clams Grand Liboa, a chow mein with oregano and cabbage, and the manager Sarah sent out a pistachio cake for me. What my take was, I really enjoyed everything. I especially loved the clams. I would say that's a must order. The scene was an energetic, youngish crowd. 
perfect for solo diners or small groups because the seating is communal tables and chefs and counters. Interesting tidbit. So Nishi's Chechi e Pepe is a clever take on the Italian classic pasta as it forgoes the essential cheese, Pecorino Romano, and it's substituting instead with Momofuku's pro- proprietary hozan, which is a miso alternative made from fermented chickpeas. That's why I wanted to try that, and it was pretty amazing. You wouldn't have known it didn't have cheese in it. It's, like, pretty cool. Personal fun fact. My black bass dish reminded me of an outstanding scallops crudo that I had had last summer at Peter Serpico's Serpico in Philadelphia. It had a similar presentation, and that makes sense because Peter was a high-ranking Momofuku um, chef there, and he's alum now doing great things in Philadelphia. Okay, now the cost was $74, but please note this is including tax and gratuity. I usually give the not including tax and gratuity, but... This restaurant is no tipping. Would I go back if I get a reservation again? Yes, I would. Website is momofuku.com. Have you been there yet? I have not. (laughs) Hard to get those reservations now, but um, yeah, there's a chef that's kind of untouchable. Actually, he came to mind. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, when you were saying that before, he came to mind too. So um, it was pretty, it was, it was, it was great. That clam dish is, is awesome. Okay, it's time for the final question. So next week, my guest is Andrew Kaplan. His nickname is Cappy. He is the director of special projects for Rachel Ray. Bruce, can you ask Andrew a question? And do you know Andrew? I don't know Andrew. Okay. And, you know, my my generic restaurant question is, what's your favorite long-term iconic restaurant? I'm always fascinated about restaurants who are who fly under the radar for like 20 or 30 years. And Raul's is my, my mm-hmm. example. So I, what's your Raul's? What's your go-to classic under the radar restaurant? I mean, I probably should ask something about Rachel Ray, but that's my I'll, I'm going to ask about Rachel Ray. So yeah. that's a great question. And have you been to Raul's new brunch they're doing? I read no, about that. I haven't been in a while. When I was down there, I, I worked my first real restaurant job long-term where I didn't get fired was at Broom Street. Uh, Broom Street Bar. Oh, okay. Which, interestingly, was one of Lafrida's first customers. Um, and this was a long time ago. So, we used to go, after leaving Broom Street, we used to go to Rebels. And that was our spot for a long well, time. Well, it's a great spot, and it's a great question. I will ask him and see what he has to say. Good. Thank you. So, that's the show. Oh, a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for coming out, sharing your expertise with us, and... Uh, I will see you at South Beach Food and Wine and around the, f- the food scene. Yes, absolutely, Sharon. Great. So my guest today has been Bruce Bronster. He is a law partner with Wendell's Marks, Lane, and Mittendorf. Their website is wendellsmarks.com, and you can follow them on social media at Wendell's Marks. You can also follow Bruce at Instagram. You're at B. Bronster? No, Bruce Bronster. Bruce Bronster on Instagram. Okay. Follow me on social media. I'm at Sherry Bayer. I'm at Bayer PR at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. As a reminder, all of our shows are on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can also subscribe to my shows on Stitcher and iTunes and leave reviews, which I would love for you to do so I can hear what you think of the show. Also, if anyone out there wants to sponsor my show, I'm looking to get some new sponsors. So feel free to reach out to me at sherry at sherrybayer.com. 
Thanks again to my fabulous guest, Bruce Bronster, and to my fabulous engineer, Jack Inslee. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next Wednesday at 4 with another live show. Till then, have a great week. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.